And that does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts now. It is Tuesday, and I am really glad you're here. Thank you for joining me on the program. Um, there's been a lot of debate stuff, but I'm going all true crime tonight, as I do. So here we go. We're going to start with the sexy stuff. Uh, when I say sexy stuff, I mean super-duper sexy. And not just one case of sexy stuff, a couple of cases of sexy stuff, where the lady in the case is super-duper sexy and does sexy things, and it might actually affect how she's treated by the jury. Do you remember Tatiana Remley? The name might not be easy to remember, but the pictures are easy on the eyes. She's the one with the belt, and that's her husband with the belt around his neck at a party. Woo! Uh, there's other pictures of Tatiana like that. This is what makes her unforgettable as a murder-for-hire um, defendant, right? The whole thing about she plotted allegedly to have her husband Mark bumped off. And they'd been in this whole sexy series on TV about um, kinky stuff. It's not just any case. When you have pictures of sexy ladies, it changes the dynamic of how the jury sees them. Tonight we have new details about this case as well. And it turns out it's even sexier than we thought. Like we have some descriptions of what was in their bedroom. Rhymes with bring. I will tell you all about this. Got an exclusive source that's told us a whole lot about the relationship and the dynamics inside that household. And then we're going to talk about how that actually could affect her trial because it's happened before. Ladies have been convicted for just being too slutty. Not kidding. It's time to check ourselves. I'm also going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, serial killer John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer. If you think that story is, like, done, because 30 years ago he was executed for his serial killings of 33 men and boys, I got news for you. As of this time tomorrow, there is going to be a podcast that drops with a lot of new information. Audio tapes of Gacy himself talking pre-trial to his lawyer and allegations that there may be as many as four more victims of John Wayne Gacy. And it gets worse. Had we missed it? How about it wasn't missed? How about it may have just been covered up? And how about allegations against the police? Okay, so all of that is coming. And by the way, the podcast isn't just a podcaster. It's someone really, really connected to the Gacy case. It's his lawyer's son. That's coming up in just a moment. Tapes, Gacy's own words, all that in a moment. And then, um, have you ever been slapped across the face? Or just slapped anywhere? My thought is that you're probably going to say yes, and you probably didn't like it. Probably left a red mark, kind of hurt, embarrassing. There is, There are people who pay for this. Just listen for a second. Crank it, crank up the volume. Can I repeat, they pay for this? Like, they're slapping themselves right now and paying for this, paying a lot of money for this. And sometimes other people slap them, and sometimes the slapping is, like, really hard. It, okay, look, everyone has their reasons for therapy, 
and this therapy allegedly killed a 71-year-old grandmother. Slap therapy. I kid you not. Pay a lot of money for it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how that woman died, what happens now to the guru behind slap therapy, and why we also have to talk about a four-year-old boy. Because once you start talking about a four-year-old boy, that boy didn't choose slap therapy, and he's dead. Okay, let's start, though, tonight um, with uh, sexy stuff. A new and exclusive peek into the bungled murder-for-hire plot. And if you remember the people involved, Mark and Tatiana Remley, there they are, dancing it up, uh, you'll know that murder-for-hire may be one of the tamer things that those two were ever allegedly mixed up in. We have brought you this story before. A gorgeous, wealthy, like uber, super, sickeningly wealthy couple in Southern California. Five million dollar mansion, three Rolls Royces, a Ferrari, an estate in Hawaii. That's just the tip of their financial iceberg. Uh, Mark gave Tatiana, who's 15 years younger, uh, the world. Like, everything. Including a cycling studio, a, a polo team. <laughs> You imagine? Hi, honey. Um, he gave her a multi-million dollar equestrian show that was modeled after the smash hit Cirque du Soleil. But I don't think it was enough. Uh, or maybe it was too much. Or maybe it was something else altogether. Because in July, Tatiana filed for divorce. And weeks later, that number right there was arrested for allegedly hiring a hitman to bump off Mark. Sadly for Tatiana, the hitman was an actual cop. Uh, the price was a whopping $2 million, allegedly. Mark survived all of this, physically, uh, promptly went into hiding, and the world soon learned about a toxic relationship filled with prostitutes and strippers and kinky stuff like sex clubs. Some of which you actually might have seen on the Showtime series called Naked Sanctum. It's actually really good. I watched it before I ever knew about this story. Uh, Mark and Tatiana were in it, and they had stage names in that series, uh, Vladimir and Ileana. Ileana, I mean, her name was Tatiana. Like, why not just... Anyway, um, on the show, Ileana, Tatiana, uh, revealed that she definitely had a thing for bunnies. The bunnies were beautiful. They're sensuous. There's something enticing about their, their energy. It draws me to them. I cannot stop myself. Like all the taboos of this world and everything just dissolves in their energy. So Sex is probably the biggest part of our life. Yes. Sex is the center of our universe. And everything we derive around it revolves around it. Correct. And in the beginning of our relationship, we weren't into this uh, lifestyle. But as time grew on and our sexuality grew together, we opened up to this type of experience. And Sanctum made it all that much more amazing. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me because whenever I see that stuff, I think of the bunny that I had when I was a kid named Sedley who escaped somewhere out there. We never found him again. Neighborhood kids let the lid off the... I know you're probably not thinking about Sedley. You're probably thinking about that kind of bunny. And tonight we got some other things to think about because we have new exclusive insights from a source close to that former couple about what went on behind their big fancy mansion doors before that big fancy expensive mansion actually burned to the ground. 
And that inferno in case you're keeping score was ignited just six days after Tatiana filed for divorce. So our inside source has asked to remain anonymous, uh, telling us, quote, if Tatiana was willing uh, to kill or take a hit out on him, maybe she would try something um, as retaliation, end quote. The source describes Tatiana as a control freak who would push everything to the limit. Uh, She's said to be a fighter and an instigator who had to be the center of attention at all times and dreamed of becoming a real housewife. I would assume that's the Bravo TV thing, right? Maybe because they're in California, maybe Orange County, Beverly Hills, I don't know. Our source also claims that she was not mom of the year. No way to her children or to Mark's kids either, and Mark's kids did not like her. As for Mark, uh, the words puppy dog came up, and that's actually for a second time because we heard that before. That phrase was used actually by the one-time business partner who gave us um, his photos of Mark being led around by the belt, fastened around his neck like a puppy dog. The Remley's marriage is described as, quote, weird and volatile, end quote. They did have a brief separation and. 2013, but at other times, I think their marriage could be described as good enough uh, to require a sex swing in their bedroom. Remember I said it rhymed with bring? Joining me now, Caitlin Becker. She's a senior reporter for thedailymail.com. A sex swing in the bedroom. It does sort of bring up um, all the things they said on the show, Naked Sanctum. But man, the story just keeps, like, I keep thinking there are so many more details, Caitlin, that we don't even know about yet, and that if there's a trial, when there's a trial, we're going to learn them then. Ashley, you're exactly right. These two have been slinging just sort of hate and vitriol at each other throughout the entire process. The sex swing and everything that they had said about that aspect of their relationship makes me believe that perhaps they should have worked on a different aspect of their relationship, because clearly they were fine in the bedroom, but it seems that outside of the bedroom, things were volatile based on everything that people who know them have said. And then based on the situation we've gotten ourselves into, she's been arrested for this murder for hire plot prior to the sting operation, which took place in a Starbucks when she was arrested for allegedly um, proposing that this undercover cop knock off her husband, she had apparently allegedly approached a friend previously and asked them to do the job. That person then went to law enforcement, which is how the sting kind of came about. And as you said, the house also kind of burnt to the ground somewhere in between here. So there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of unanswered questions. I am like, for whatever reason, sort of fascinated because I love Bravo TV uh, about the real housewives business. Do do we know about um, whether Bravo rejected them, whether she actually went forward and put in an application to become a real housewife, like which housewife and which, you know, franchise, do we know anything more about it? Based on everything we know about Tatiana, she didn't seem like a real go-getter when it came to her actual career and desires. I think she kind of wanted things to sort of fall in her lap and be handed to her. I don't think she ever really worked a job. So Something tells me that this was sort of a pipe dream, that this is something that she kind of just wanted to do and thought she could do because she was married to someone wealthy and sexually open and beautiful and all of those other aspects which would make for a good housewife. But frankly, Ashley, if she gets away with the crime she's accused of or gets relief and isn't convicted, I think she has a better chance of actually becoming a future housewife because that makes for good television. 
I mean, look at the pictures of her. She is beautiful. Um, real quickly about the kids. You know, the source was telling us that she was not mother of the year. Um, that uh, there's a difference. Look at that. Hey, wow. That that's her uh, in her fancy days, and then that's her uh, after spending some time in lockup, waiting trial. What, tell me about the kid business. Like, she, the source again says she's not a good mother to her own kids or or to Marks. What do we know? This is something we've heard before. In her first marriage, she had a son when she was in her early 20s. Her husband at the time was also another multimillionaire worth somewhere upwards of $35 million. And they were married for less than a year. She gave birth to a baby boy. And in their divorce proceedings and in their ongoing custody battle, which I think lasted years and years and years, there were court documents where her estranged ex-husband said that she had no skills to be a parent or a mother and that she herself as a child was allegedly abused by her own parents and by her own brother, who I believe's name was Vladimir, which of course piqued my interest when you said at the beginning of the show that their code names were Vladimir and Ileana. So that was a little odd. In these court documents, it was alleged that she was sexually abused by her older brother and that she did not graduate high school. She did not go past possibly the fourth grade so that she just did not have the skills to be a parent. She also has a daughter, which happened from another relationship. And I don't know if she has any relationship with either of these children at this point. There's a lot that's going to come out uh, in more pretrial hearings, hopefully, and then also in, in trial, again, if it goes to trial. Caitlin Becker, great work. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Tatiana's case, it calls into question something that I've been wondering my whole career. Are women defendants judged on matters other than their alleged crimes, like their looks, for instance? How they look in the courtroom versus how they look in real life. Are they judged on their sex lives? Being slutty is not a crime, nor is being hot. And I'm not suggesting that she was being slutty because everybody is allowed a kink, right? Especially in that marriage. You can do whatever you want. And you know what else is not a crime? Looking bad or ordinary in court because you don't have access to hairstylist and makeup and nice clothes that you do on the outside world. Tatiana's appearance at a hearing in October was just strikingly different from the Instagram model that we've come to know. She did manage to put some eyeliner on her eyes, braid her hair. Eyeliner probably was from ink from a magazine. But is that going to matter to a jury? Is her sex life going to become the star of the show? If you saw the Netflix series about the fraudster Anna Delvey, You saw up close and personal the importance of looking the part when you show up in court, even when you're an inmate. Take a look. Why do you dress like that? Like? Like that. What are you wearing? You look poor. (laughs) This is a nice... I'm I'm pregnant and maternity clothes are hard to... Dress down for prison. No, you need to get better clothes. You look poor. Eileen Warnos, she was a prostitute and a serial killer, and she looked pretty rough at her trial, and she was sentenced to death, although, in fairness, she did confess to a lot of her crimes and then take it back and then confess again, and it's a mess. Uh, do you remember Jody Arias? That's what she looked like most of the time on her 17 days on the stand. Mousy, but not awful. 
but mousy, way mousier than her blonde hottie shots. She was sentenced to life without parole for killing her ex-boyfriend. In fairness, she was also a filthy serial liar. Uh, Cynthia Summer, however, is not as well known as either of them. But there she is. See the black eye? Two-tone hair? That's her on the stand um, in 2007 when she was on trial for murder. She was convicted in 07. Convicted of poisoning her husband, Todd. Sent to prison for life, no parole. Lost her four kids because they were separated and farmed out around the, the country, basically as orphans. But here's the problem, and it is a biggie. Uh, the state told the jury that Todd, a Marine, was poisoned with arsenic. And he wasn't. Todd wasn't poisoned. Todd did not die of poisoning. The lab that told the court and the jury that Todd died of a, a crazy, like, Martian amount of arsenic, the lab screwed it up. No arsenic at all, actually, in Todd's body. None. No murder. So the rest of the case against her, let's just say it focused on non-legal matters, like conduct unbecoming a grieving widow. She got a boob job, and she had sex with other men after her husband's death. Whoa! Imagine. Imagine that. But that shit was trumpeted against her in trial over and over and over and over again. Slut. How dare she? Her blonde highlights grew out in jail. And she got a black eye. She said she fell out of her bed, but who knows? Her two-tone hair on the stand made her look like a gangster. She wasn't. Instead, she was a mom of four who was wrongfully convicted, who lost her kids for years and lost her husband forever, and who was called a murderer. And she wasn't. Nobody knows the injustice of that case better than my next guest. Alan Bloom is the defense attorney who got Cynthia Summer exonerated and discovered the lab's colossal mistake, and he's here with me live now. And thank God for you, Alan Bloom. Thank God that you took that case, that you took it to the court, and you had everything overturned, and you got her out of prison for life, no parole. But I do have to ask you about the stuff I was just talking about, the bullshit that women go through at trial, because they may not look the part, or they may be sexy, God forbid. Um, is, this a, uh, is this a big problem, bigger than even what I'm talking about tonight? The jurors take a look at people, of course. Uh, that's part of our system to leave the jurors close to everybody in there so they can see the defendant and see what they look like, and they make a judgment uh, upon that. All of us do that in everything in, in our life. We look at somebody. I look at you, you look at me, and uh, you make a decision as to how honest I am or how forthright or how smart or how not smart I am by uh, general appearances. So obviously general appearance is important. It doesn't, it doesn't usually win a case. It's the kind of thing that can lose a case. And I think in Cindy's case, I didn't represent her at that trial. I was the lawyer that got the case overturned. But at that trial, um, I think that the fact that she had to come up with uh, um, makeup that was homemade and uh, appearances that weren't properly presented. Um, she didn't even look normal. She looked as you've described it. And I think that took a lot of steps towards painting the picture that the prosecution wanted to paint, namely that she was slutty and that she would look at her and how could you believe anything that she would say. That mentality, I think, was used by the prosecution. 
It shouldn't have been, but it yeah, was. Yeah, in Tatiana Remley's case, Alan, Tatiana Remley is like just stunningly gorgeous, right? And she showed up in court, and I immediately thought about Cindy Summer, a beautiful woman who showed up in court. Look, if you took this makeup and hair off of me, I would scare the hell out of you. And I would go into jail, and then I would show up. Oh, trust me, you don't want to see it. Um, but I would go into to jail, and I would show up in that courtroom, and it, I feel like it would be a real unfair advantage because the difference between you and me is that you're already without makeup and hair, right? And you would look no different. So any man who shows up in a courtroom looks just like he did usually the day before he was arrested. Women, however, look like criminals when they do jail makeup, jail hair. Is that changing at all? I just feel like, look, you can say what you want about Tatiana and the facts against her and all the rest, but we all deserve a fair shake when we get into that courtroom. And are women getting a fair shake by showing up like they were just rolled out of bed or they rolled out of their, their gang? There's going to be several biases in this case. You've mentioned one of them. Women do have a harder chance, a harder opportunity to, to face the jury uh, coming from a situation where they're not even accorded the usual aspects of uh, regular grooming that we attribute to somebody who, uh, who's looking good, trying to dress up. Somebody, even how you would go to church, how you would go to uh, a special meeting, a family gathering, you would put on some makeup or you would dress well. And that's easier to do if you're a man as opposed to if you're a woman. So that's one bias you're going to have. You're going to have rich poor bias as well in this case. It may have a lot more to do even than uh, the male female. You have, you've mentioned multiple times in this case, having to do with an extravagant lifestyle and a very rich lifestyle. Uh, the North County of San Diego, where this case is going to be heard, uh, is a fairly affluent community, a fairly affluent area, but there's a lot of uh, jurors that are going to come and nobody's going, and a lot of them are not going to be coming from a lifestyle that's that uh, extravagant. So I think that'll be part of the bias. How she appears in both of those areas, male, female, and as well as rich, poor, is going to have an impact uh, uh, on the case. But again, it's not going to win or lose the case. Well, it might lose the case. It's not going to win the case. Um, a good judge is going to keep out most of the things that you say you want to hear. You like to hear about all this lifestyle stuff. A good judge is not going to allow that in. Prosecution, a wow, good prosecutor. Wow, sure heard about it, right? In, in Cindy's uh, original trial, again, you were not the trial attorney, and that trial attorney fell on the sword uh, for ineffective assistance of counsel. But man, oh man, did they bring in so much stuff against her and made her just look slutty. And um, in this Tatiana Remley case, I, I can see a lot of that coming in, too. So, hey, Alan, what will you come back again? Because as this case progresses, go ahead. I was only going to say that that actually came in against Cindy because Cindy's uh, evidence opened the door. The good judge in that case said, no, it can't come in. And then certain evidence came out in the presentation of her case that opened the door. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff that you're talking about hearing, a good judge is not going to allow it in. Yeah. Well, and a good lawyer would also bring in uh, an expert to, to counter, you know, how a woman grieves. Maybe she doesn't grieve the same as a Pollyanna, you know, or a Puritan. Maybe she grieves differently. Um, men certainly can, can grieve pretty violently. I've seen them in bars after a death in the family, and they, they blow up. So women not afforded that same... That emo the same emotion. Um, Alan, I'm going to call you again early and often because I'm just so appreciative of the work that you did in Cindy's case and also your wisdom. Um, and say hi to her for me and wish her the best. I haven't talked to Cindy for a little bit, actually. It was a show that, that I think you guys uh, put together. So you've talked to her as much as I have. But I hear through the grapevine, Cindy's doing well. And she's trying to, live, she's trying to regain a lot of the stuff that uh, she's lost. No, that's a lot. It's a, a lot, lot to regain and you never really can.
We're going to ask right. you back again. Thanks, Alan Bloom. My pleasure, Ashley. Still to come, uh, would you pay $1,000 to have someone slap you silly? Actually, slap you black and blue and red. Because a lot of people do. They call it slap therapy. And it is more popular than you think. At least it was until a 71-year-old grandmother died during one of the sessions. And now the promoter of this has been charged with manslaughter. And after the break, there is that one other pesky thing that could come back to haunt him. That's next. The formal name is Paidala Jin, the Chinese words that literally mean beat and pull. In the West, they just call it slap therapy, and it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, the patients, for lack of a better word, go through this. They are slapped repeatedly. Or this, they just slap themselves. Sometimes someone does it, sometimes they do it. This is supposed to increase circulation and draw out toxins from the blood. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it often leads to bruising and bleeding all over the body. But the true believers say it can cure everything from inflammation to diabetes to baldness. For a time, it was pretty organized and it was pretty popular, thanks in large part to a Chinese-born U.S. citizen named Hong Shishao. That's him right there. He started the Slap Therapy Institute in California. He wrote a book about it. He hosted seminars all around the world. But in uh, 2016, things didn't go so well because that lady right there, 71-year-old diabetic grandmother named Danielle Cargong, died at one of the seminars in England. The investigators say that she was not only slapped repeatedly, but that she was also like forced and stretched across this table-like thing. She was encouraged to fast for days at a time. She went two full days without her insulin. It took three years for the UK police to charge Hong Shi with manslaughter, but by then he was in Australia and he was in prison because it seems the year before Cargom died, a six-year-old Australian boy died at a seminar in that country, Australia. He too had had diabetes and went without his insulin. And after the boy's death, Hong Shi released this video calling the whole thing an unfortunate accident. Have a listen. For all those who are concerned, please wait for the result or the report from the Australian authorities. When I say this is an accident, that means this has nothing to do with the workshop. It is purely an accident. And that, this boy had a lot of diseases more diseases you ever know. Again, let's leave it to the authorities to investigate. Purely an accident, he said, and then he took off for Britain and the workshop where Danielle Cargom died. In 2017, he was extradited back to Australia. He was sentenced to 10 years for manslaughter, but that was overturned on appeal and a new trial was ordered. And in the meantime, Hong Shi was sent back to England to stand trial in the grandmother's death. I want to stop here and bring in Rachel Bernstein. She is a therapist and she's the host of Indoctrination, a weekly podcast covering cults, manipulators, and how to protect yourself from systems of control. Okay, Danielle, so was this a cult? Was this a con? 
Was it medical? Is there any difference between all three of those things? This is actually uh, an exact sign of a cult, and there is a con built into it. But when you're dealing with cults like this, you have this extreme and manipulative belief and practice that's centered around a particular person, a leader. Without him, this wouldn't exist. And so it is very dangerous because people will listen to everything he tells them to do, obviously to their detriment and sometimes to their death. Yeah, slapping your head uh, repeatedly can't possibly be good for you. They, many of them paid up to $1,000 per seminar, and that is just extraordinary. Um, if you have any questions at all as to whether this thing would work, they're certainly shelling out a lot of money. Were there any testimonials? Did, did anything ever happen to, to make it look like it might be true? What's so interesting when you look at some of the testimonials connected to this group is that people were proudly saying that they slapped their infants on his suggestion. And they were talking about how, while it might not have worked for the first time that they went, they're waiting for uh, their second and third opportunity to be able to go to see if it works then. So there was this carrot dangled in front of people, and you can see it in the testimonials. Question for you. Even though this guy, no, well, there's now two deaths, and, and he's now you know, facing criminal action in, in both of them, they still seem to have a lot of supporters, that the whole movement. Like, what would it actually take for people to not do this? That's such a good question. And I wish this were enough. What you have here is you have people who are really desperate. A lot of times they've already tried everything. And especially if they're worried about their children, they're going to do things that they think are going to be able to help their children in a way that other kind of medicine hasn't, or at least hasn't yet. And so they're putting their faith in this person, and he's more than happy to pretend that he can cure everything. He seems very sure of himself, which a lot of people are going to be very taken in by. But people really want magic, especially when they're running out of hope. And they want to follow someone whose message they really need to believe in. And unfortunately, they're going to believe in him, and he's still going to believe in himself. He has an unwavering message of absolute belief and absolute cures for everything. And there is no one person and no one way that can cure everything. Oh, if only they read the Internet and saw the people who actually died, including a six-year-old. Rachel Bernstein, thank you so much. Good to have you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Still to come, John Wayne Gacy. Just saying that name conjures up the face of the killer clown who was executed by the state of Illinois for raping and torturing and murdering 33 men and boys and then burying some of them in his basement. But after all of this time, is it possible there are still victims of Gacy that people and police don't know about? Or maybe that someone doesn't want us to know about? Someone very close to the Gacy case says, definitely, absolutely, there are more victims. And he has the receipts to back it up. And he is live in just a couple of minutes. So don't go anywhere. Uh, John Wayne Gacy sat down to a bucket of KFC, some strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That was May of 1994, and that was what Gacy wanted for his last meal on earth. KFC, strawberries, and Diet Coke. Why diet? 
the killer clown was put to death by lethal injection just after he had that meal. And um, the tally of Gacy's murders, 33 young men and boys. It makes him one of the sickest and most prolific serial killers on record. He raped his victims. He tortured his victims. He buried most of his victims around or under his house in Chicago. But that number, 33, is only what the officials could prove. And after all this time, not everybody believes that Gacy killed only 33 men and boys. And they're working to put some names and faces to people who are still missing from the time of his serial murders. Bob Mata is one of the people uh, convinced there are more John Wayne Gacy victims buried out there somewhere. He's a criminal defense attorney in Chicago, and he hosts a true crime podcast called The Defense Diaries. And lest you think that Bob's interests in the Gacy case are purely for his podcast, crime historians will recognize Bob's name. His father also is Bob Mata. That's him on the right, right there. He served as John Wayne Gacy's trial attorney back in 1980. Bob Mata, the son, way over on the right, is here live with me now. Bob, great to see you. Thanks for, for being on the, the show. I mean, listen, what a tease for the podcast dropping tomorrow, but what is it? What, why is it you can make such a compelling case that there are more victims? Well, it, 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 hi, Ashley. Thanks for having me on. It's great to, great to hang with you. Um, it, well, so I started this uh, a couple of years ago when my father had given me all of his taped interviews with Gacy. I did a first season of it and where I kind of released a lot of the sound of the tapes. I was digging into the case, more about the victims, the investigation and the trial, And as I was progressing through that, uh, I had an old Chicago detective named Bill Dorsch reach out to me. He kind of liked the way that I was handling the fact of Chicago police had done nothing during the time that Gacy was active to stop him. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. And he felt that I was one of the first people to kind of come out and say that openly. And so we started talking and I came to learn that that Bill Dorsch had been doing research for 20 plus years um, into Gacy after the fact, doing what he thought that law enforcement should have done. And Bill, being a former Chicago homicide detective himself, uh, has a pretty good idea what he's doing in terms of his investigation. So we decided that we were going to collaborate. And I, I, the irony of the son of the man who defended Gacy is now trying to advocate for his victims is not lost on me. Uh, but as a matter of fact, I think it drives me more than anything. So all those that things kind of came together. <laughs> yeah, mean, it's ironic. It really, you know, can you, um, I, I know that, that, that your, your dad gave you the tapes, I think for your 21st birthday. Can you set up a clip and, and let us know what we're about to hear? Yeah, uh, this particular clip uh, is interesting. So when my father was brought onto the case and, and both him and Sam were hired, they weren't public defenders. Sam had done a bunch of contractual work for, for Gacy prior to his arrest, the big arrest. And then my father had just come out of the public defender's office when the story broke in December. And so he saw Sam on TV. He's like, oh my God, I know him. I should call him to see if he needs help with the case. He did, Sam did. And so what we're hearing here are uh, the tapes of my father preparing John Wayne Gacy for his insanity defense trial. Uh, And he was being housed in Cermak Memorial Hospital, which was where they would house the mentally ill prior to trial. So this particular clip uh, is Gacy trying to remember what he's done in his past. It's, it's pretty interesting. All right, let's roll it. Sam said I could have killed a hundred people. How do I know I didn't kill a hundred people? 
How did I know I didn't do this while I was traveling? Possible, but I don't recall it. See, you're right. How the hell do you feel about something that you don't do? How can I have any feelings about it? Once they were the ground, they weren't my problem. Holy Dinah. Okay, uh, I just have to get you to, to button this up. Uh, are we going to learn a whole lot more when the, when the podcast drops tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's, so I've got the first season out. I have a ton of the tapes in there already. The second season is we're really boots on the ground and we're digging. So the first season is the more historical, which is already out on Defense Diaries. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's got hours and hours of Gacy. Uh, just being his horrible self uh, and saying the horrible things that he does uh, and just being completely uh, has zero empathy um, for anything that he ever had done. It's shocking. It's frankly him. I'll give you another plug here, Bob. I'm going to give you another plug. Accomplices. This is crazy that you talk about two potential accomplices, that you talk about four potential new victims. I can't wait. Let me give another plug. It's Defense Diaries. New season uh, drops tomorrow. Bob Mata, will you come back again? Absolutely. So much more we're going to talk about. Oh, I can't wait. All right, uh, coming up. A woman goes on a cross-country road trip with her ex, and then he comes back, but she does not. Sounds a whole lot like the Gabby Petito case, but it is not. This one involves a missing woman from Wyoming. And while everyone hopes that it does not end up the same way it did for Gabby, there is real reason to fear the worst. And I'm going to tell you why next. If two people go on a road trip and only one comes back and the other stays completely out of sight there's a pretty good chance that something terrible happened along the way. We learned that painful truth in the Gabby Petito case. And now, sadly, we may be seeing it again with this beautiful woman. Uh, Back in October, that's Katie Ferguson. She's 33 years old. She set out from Alabama on a road trip all the way up to Wyoming. And along for the ride, her ex-boyfriend, Adam Aviles, and their two young daughters, Police actually saw the vehicle a total of four times during the weeks that they were spending on the road. But Katie, Katie Ferguson was in the vehicle only once. Only one time did they observe her in the car out of those four. And that was October 5th in Arkansas. On October 9th, the Texas State Patrol pulled Aviles over. And while there was no sign of Ferguson in the car, there was a, quote, projectile hole in the passenger side door. On November 2nd, Ferguson's mother reported her missing. And then just two days later, police found Avila's vehicle, a 1999 Dodge Durango. The car made it to Wyoming, but it was abandoned there. And the police said they noticed a smell of, quote, putrefied blood, and they saw a pistol inside. They also found live ammunition and three fire grounds, two in the front passenger door. The front passenger seat was curiously missing, And there were multiple Clorox wipes and lots and lots of dried blood. Katie's stepmom, Angela Ferguson, and sister, Nicole Ferguson, are trying their best to stay positive, but they fear the worst. They spoke to KTVQ in Montana. It all points in a very tragic direction. It's just unfathomable. I love her, and I I don't want to be negative, but I don't think she's going to come home, but I at least want her to be found. 
Somehow, Aviles, who incidentally made it home with the couple's two daughters, um, he wasn't arrested for any of that. Right now, he's being held on a gun charge, strangely. And as far as the daughters go, the couple's four-year-old told investigators that she witnessed her father, quote, accidentally hurting her mother. We'll continue to watch that story for you. And still ahead tonight, you can run, but you can't hide. Okay, you can hide, but you're going to get caught. Okay, it may take a long time for you to get caught, but either way, you're going to pay a price, right? You can't just run away from your jail guards right before your murder trial, like Caitlin Armstrong did here, and then just get away with it, right? When we come back, one more thing about the Caitlin Armstrong case that we did not see coming. If you sprint away from your jail guards while you are awaiting your murder trial, and if you run Benny Hill style with them chasing you around a tree, and if a passerby captures it all on video, you're going to get in a lot of trouble for it, right? Like criminal charges that'll be tacked onto your murder case, right? I am talking to you, Caitlin Armstrong, because this here, this was quite a little stunt that you pulled off uh, after your inmate doctor's appointment that you made sure you got just a couple days before your murder trial started in Austin. I still cannot figure out for the life of me where you thought you were going to be able to run to with those jailhouse stripes on. Although it did come out later you had tights on underneath. Very clever. Uh, but as it turns out, that guilty verdict that she got just a few weeks ago, that's going to be it. There will not be any new charges added for that comical escape attempt, an escape that she apparently planned for weeks. DA in Texas uh, admits to uh, dismissing that charge now, um, now that Armstrong is headed to the state pen for 90 years for Mo Wilson's murder. So I think to myself, okay, so what's the downside, right? Like if you're an inmate right now, um, why not? Like, why not just do it? Like, like, what do you got to lose, right? The upside is you might have actually gotten over that fence and been like, boo, I'm going to Costa Rica. Um, the downside, there's no downside. There's no charge. A little shocking. Anyway, 90 years. That's got to stink. Uh, DA's not done with Armstrong yet, though, because he can't be. She is